Hello and welcome to the Asia Perspectives podcast from the Economist Intelligence Unit. In each episode, we examine perspectives on industry and management to better understand how the world is changing and how those changes can create opportunities and risks to be managed. My name is Jason Winsunis. I'm a senior editor with the Economist Intelligence Unit, and I'll be your host this week for a topic on China's economic recovery from the still unfolding pandemic. And to dig into that, I'm joined by Wu Chen, who is the managing director of the Economist Global Business Review. He's a longtime veteran of journalism in Asia, and has worked for Business Week in Hong Kong, Bloomberg News in Singapore, and the International News Department of the Chinua News Agency in Beijing, as well as heading up Asia Pacific Editorial for Eurofinance. He also holds several degrees from Chinese and U.S. universities, and his latest book. The Nexus of Business and Technology was released in August 2019. He is a close watcher of international business and China, so we're very pleased to have him with us this week. Welcome, Chen. Great to have you here. Hi, Jason. It's very great to be on board. And before we get started, can you just give listeners a quick introduction to the Global Business Review and what it actually does? So, Global Business Review is actually a bilingual app that the Economist produced five years ago. We launched it in China and Asia, trying to cater to the needs of the local audience to understand the coverage of business, finance, and technology. And we now have we are building a big local follower. Yeah. So you're based in Shanghai, correct? Yeah. And what's the virus situation there like today? So I think we are post COVID, so we call it、uh, AD after disease, because I think in the past months people are really focusing on the recovery of the economy rather than really dealing with the virus. Shanghai hasn't got any new infections in the past three weeks, and overall it's only a mild outbreak. Less than 500 people have been infected, and a dozen people died. So in the past two months, really. People are focusing on how can we revive the economy. Just give you one example. April first is the first time I went out to have lunch with friends, and you'd be amazed that there's no social distancing whatsoever, and the restaurants, many of the restaurants, are packed. So I think China is a good, and Shanghai in particular, is a good parameter for us to understand how quick things can come back live. Yeah, in Hong Kong, we're getting close to 1,100 cases total. We had a nice long stretch there where there was nothing but imported cases mainly. That was from about mid-May, but we've seen a few local cases come up just recently. So things have been starting to get back to something closer to normal here. But you know, there's other issues to unravel with that. But today, what we really want to discuss is related to this virus small talk we're having right now and getting back to normal in China. And、this is a topic that you just covered in a webinar held last week, titled "Reviving the Dragon: China's Recovery." Can you give us、uh, just a quick outline and who was on the panel with you? Yeah. So, starting with the panels, we have four interesting speakers: Ding Shuang, the chief economist from Standard Chartered, Greater China and North Asia; Professor Gu Qingyang from the Li Kongyou School of Public Policy, National University of Singapore; Chris Tui from Modern Land, one of the Hong Kong listed real estate developer, and also Stephen Schwartz, the head of AP Sovereign Rating at Fitch Ratings. So the idea, of course, is try to understand how fast China is recovering from COVID, and the timing of the 
webinar is also interesting because we host a webinar on the very last day when China's two sessions, the kind of delayed two session parliament sessions are in session. It's the last day of that. And our webinar is also coincide with when the prime minister was giving a press conference. And it's, there's a lot of things to digest on the policy side. And then we also use the platform to try to understand the trajectory of the recovery, how optimistic and or pessimistic people are about China's prospect for the rest of the year. What are the key issues that we have to pay attention to on the policy front? And also just try to get the kind of overall mood because I think over a thousand people participated as listeners and we try to use four questions to get the kind of the wisdom of the crowd. Excellent. Now, when I listened to the webinar, it seemed like your guests were largely positive on GDP growth for China this year. I know the EIU's own forecast is about 1% growth. I think it was Fitch Ratings who said 0.7% growth. That was on the low end. But one of the forecasts that your guests had was up to 3% on the high end. Is that right? Yeah, so I think uh, Fitch is on the lower end. Uh, uh, Standard Charter is forecasting 3%. And we asked a poll question. The very first question is, what's your forecast for the rest of the year? And over 40% of people actually are citing 2 to 3%. So they think that China still could grow for kind of a, you know, half the previous rate. But given the fact that in the first quarter, China's GDP contracted for the first time in the past 20 years, 6.8%. If they are indeed believed that China could grow overall 2 to 3%, then it means that uh, for the second half, it will have maybe double-digit growth for the first time in the past decade. Now, what are some of the headwinds that are drawing down the the forecast, the EIU for ourselves, we forecast 1% growth. In fact, we put out a report where we had GDP forecasts for the entire world. And if you look across the map there, China is one of the very few that has a positive number. So actually, it's doing better than most countries, but it's still got some headwinds and some tailwinds. Can you tell us about some of those? So I think, you know, overall, you see things really picking up. So starting from May, really, a lot of discussion is really about how can we get started? How can we catch up from where we left off? So you do see a lot of activities. And of course, if you look at the government policy initiatives, there's a lot of talk about the new infrastructure. There's a lot of talk about can we jumpstart the economy? And I think people are really confident of some of the internal demands that we've seen. Consumption is really coming back. And then, of course, if you look at the e-commerce numbers, even during the lockdown period, February and March, e-commerce, all you know, various different channels have generated over double-digit growth. So consumption is there. But I think on the headwind side, there's a lot of concern about export. During the lockdown, people are concerned about the China become a choking point for supply chain. But after the lockdown, when Chinese workers really head back to factories in coastal China, what they find out is that many of the factories are not receiving the kind of orders they would expect. And many of the workers are really not having access to good jobs. That's really kind of a concerning factor. So internally, I think things are really getting to normal very quickly. But externally, I think the sharp drop of external demand is really providing a lot of pressure on China's growth. And of course, last but not the least, 
there's a lot of discussion about the trade war and the US-China conflict. And what we're seeing is kind of continued escalation on that front. One of the things that was interesting to me is that China is very well known for hitting its GDP numbers. It, it's uh, quite consistent in hitting those. But this year, if I understand correctly, they've actually taken the target away. Is, is that right? Yeah. So it's uh, kind of rare because it's like in the past 20 years, China has always set a target and always managed to meet the target. So in the last four years, they are creating a band rather than a specific number. So last year was a band between 5.5 to 6.5 and China definitely hits that band. But this year, I think there are two main reasons why the government doesn't want to provide a figure because A, you really, it's very, very hard to set a specific number, even a band, say two to three, percentage point, because if you look at the first quarter number, GDP actually contracted for 6.5%, the first contraction in the past 30 years. So there's a lot, a huge gap China needs to close. And the second thing as what's being highlighted in the discussions in the two sessions is that the government and the premier has pointed out fairly clearly there's a lot of uncertainty down the road. We really don't know how fast the rest of the world is going to recover really don't know what kind of escalation U.S.-China trade war would turn into, really don't know many other factors that would uh, have an impact on China's growth. So in a way, they don't want to give people a specific target to hit. But it, then during our discussion, I think many of the China insiders, especially those people who have kind of their own internal channels to the Chinese officials saying that, you know, despite the fact that there's no specific number, if you look at all the efforts and policy initiatives and indicators the government is sending out is still pointing to, for the second half of China, China should grow more than 6%. So overall, China should be hitting 2 to 3% growth. Now, years before I joined the Economist Intelligence Unit, I was a merchant or an importer, really. I used to go to China and I would buy goods to wholesale back in the U.S. And I feel really lucky to have seen China during that that time. It was in the 90s and it was when the growth really was starting to take off. But over the years, you know, that since I've been close to China and watching what's happening, the thing that I've seen is one of the central pillars to the policies is there's a real aim to maintain stability above all else, you know, always err on the side of stability. Would you agree that that's how the government looks at things? And would you agree that that's the lens that they look through? I think there are kind of two parts of the stability. You know, one stability is that the government doesn't want chaos because the government knows that if they loosen the control too much, you know, there will be overheating and all the other things that comes with it. But the other part of the stability is the kind of implicit contract the government has with people. So as long as you deliver economic growth, concrete economic growth, I think people will be satisfied. So I think the focus on the stability part, especially given the kind of the COVID has been created, is that they still wanted to be able to deliver some growth so that they would be able to manage unemployment, which is really high on the agenda. If you look at the government's top priorities, there are six maintains and six drivers, and then on keep unemployment rate below 6%, that's really on top of 
government policy initiative. So they know that they need to keep people busy, they need to keep people employed, otherwise there'll be chaos. And one of the interesting latest developments is that all of a sudden, China, the premier said, we now encourage people to become street peddlers. You go, go, go ahead, if you ca cannot make your ends meet at night, go to the street, set up a little parlor, sell something so that you can earn a little bit more earnings, right? You know, so in a way, it's a, it's a slightly contradiction to China's previous policy on stability because many of the major cities, China is actually in the past 10 years tried to crack down on any of these small merchants in the street. But now given the dire economic situation that the government may have foreseen, they are actually encouraging people to say, try all your best to start a business, to sell something, to make a living so that China could endure all these uh, major shifts. So the unemployment factor is quite a big one. The government has pledged to keep unemployment at a certain rate. Is that sort of the flip side to pegging a GDP number? Again, you know, it has to do with, I think, two major factors. A is it's implicit saying that we cannot rely 100% on the state-owned enterprises. We need reliance more on the small and median and private enterprises because they are the job generators. So in a way, even on the very tops, China says the SOEs are the pillars, but it seems as if they are now really trying to encourage and provide a better overall environment to facilitate the growth of the small and medium enterprises. And the second thing is also, I think there's a lot of challenges for China because we are not only experiencing a slowdown, but also a major shift in China's transformation. So China is moving very fast in the digital economy, but many of the e-commerce, despite their rapid growth, are not employing as many people as the manufacturing sector. So China also has to deal with a massive amount of college graduates. This year, we have about 9 million Chinese students graduating from college. And how do you create high quality, well-paid jobs to those group of people? So I think there's a lot of things that government need to kind of a manage. And then, so the, in a way, set up a good unemployment target, less than 6%, is providing some certain kind of guideline, but it doesn't necessarily need to be translating into a 6% growth of the GDP, but it really highlights that where the government is want to move the economy into. So during the webinar, you had put up some poll questions to ask the audience, one of which had the unemployment as a possible answer for major concerns for the Chinese economy. Now, that answer actually polled in last place, I believe, during your audience poll. But you and the panelists seem to have a different view of that. Is Am I interpreting that right? Yeah, I think uh, it's a big surprise to us because if you look at the question we are asking, the, the key question we ask is ask people to highlight the most concerned challenge they had for the coming year. It's unemployment rate, U.S.-China trade war and conflict, fall of export demand, and a second wave of COVID. Actually, the second wave of COVID comes third, and then unemployment is last on people's kind of concern list, which in a way, I think there are two interpretations. One, of course, is that maybe the audience that we have are 
15% of them are outside China, China watchers, Ch people in the region who pay more attention to macroeconomic and even geopolitical issues rather than domestic China's issues. I think the second part is also, I think, the timing of our webinar, because the timing of the webinar is a time of continued and rapid escalation between US and China relations. And then even this week, you've seen all kinds of daily developments. US is threatening to close off all the links of air travel between China and US. And China, the next day, Chinese Aviation Authority decided to relax certain rules so that US airlines could resume flights to China. So this kind of tick and tack is very dangerous down the road. So I think it's, it's kind of a pause for that moment. So people do get concerned, but it also highlights the fact that if people are assured, because I think many of the response we had from the audience is that if people are feeling assured that the government has single-handedly picked unemployment as the most important thing that need to tackle, and the government may be able to tackle that. So that could be less of a challenge, whereas China actually cannot manage external demand because the various other factors would have a huge impact on that. And it seems as if managing US-China relations, given the situation, you cannot expect what Trump would tweet next. And you also cannot expect what the kind of a, a war wolf diplomats from China would do from the Chinese side. So it's very, very hard to predict the outcomes of US-China conflicts. So that's the reason why people, especially the observers, are more concerned. And you had uh, other poll questions that went out to the audience. How closely did the audience match with the panelists overall? I think in the overall, A, we asked people about uh, the forecast. It's you still see people are optimistic. And then, of course, our interpretation, as I've also alluded in, the, in my answer to the previous question, is that the people are expecting or at least looking forward to what the government will do. And then also factor that, that in into their view of the future. So the third question that we've asked is we're asking people whether they believe in the near future, by the end of December, China would unearth new additional stimulus package and overwhelmingly over 80% of people say yes. So I think it also highlights the fact that A, what the panels all believe is that the government is showing high level of constraint in terms of stimulating the economy, not like the Western peers. China is not using a helicopter cash. China is not providing cash to consumers to drive demand. China is not uh, shying away from what they have achieved in the past few years, meaning deleveraging the over-leveraged financial system. So they give a lot of credit to the Chinese government to stick to the way they manage the economy. But the reason I think they all believe, or the large majority of people believe, that China would stimulate at some stage later is because they know there are going to be even bigger surprises and uncertainties, and that would require governments to provide more support. One of the panelists had said, and um, I'll paraphrase because I don't remember exactly, but he was saying that the big difference between China and the U.S. in terms of stimulus package is that any measures the Chinese government has put out to battle the virus, to promote recovery, isn't just a one-off, short-term stimulus thing. It's, it still fits into the longer-term outlook, that broader plan. 
Am I interpreting the way he put that correctly? I think there are kind of two things that's very much on point. One thing is comparing China's response to the U.S. or uh, Europe in a way that China is not giving money directly to consumers because in terms of consumption, the, the saving rate China is much higher. So you know, China has a kind of a cash saving net that the government is not concerned, a sharp drop of demand. And if you look at the figures and if you look at the recovery, China is actually doing fine in terms of consumption. And then looking at the medium to long-term picture, the Chinese government has their goal firmly on spot because you know China has this China 2025, even though the Chinese government is not focusing on that. So China 2025 is really transforming Chinese economy into an innovator and into a leader in certain strategic sectors. But if you look at what China wanted the money to invest into, especially in area of new infrastructure, you see that the government is really wanted to develop the likes of data centers, the 5G capabilities, cloud capabilities. These will be the new infrastructure for the new digital economy that China is really trying to drive. So you do see a kind of a very specific, very focused policy initiative, despite the fact that we are in the middle of a chaos. Yeah, a couple of your panelists, I believe, used that term, new infrastructure, referencing smart housing. Is that one of the things that you think we're going to see more of? We're still looking at it because it's like the kind of a new catchy phrase. So the likes of 5G, there's a lot of talk about 5G, and then, of course, the cell phones are on 5G, and then many mega cities like Shanghai and Beijing, there are certain zones where you can really experience that. But in terms of 5G supporting smart infrastructure, Internet of Things, smart driving, and also smart hospitals, I think there's a lot of interest in there. Whether that will pay off, it's a big question mark. But what we do see is that people are invested in cloud computing, data warehouses, data centers, and also logistics hubs that would help bring e-commerce not only to major cities, which is well covered, but to second, third, and fourth tier cities. So e-commerce to the rural side, that's also a big, interesting development down there. And one last thing about the smart infrastructure or the new infrastructure is there might be an interesting new development in China's railway planning. Because in the past decade, China has literally built one of the largest high-speed railway network by far in the world. And now I think the reasoning is that China doesn't need that many new high-speed rail lines. What needed is to connecting these high-speed rail lines with more kind of a urban expansion. So how do you use traditional and expand the traditional rail network to the high-speed rail network to make sure that the mega cities in many of the, the clusters, the Yangtze River Delta, the Pearl River Delta, could be more connected. So a next wave of urbanization really tried to bring China's urbanization rate from currently 55% to 70%, where US and other Western peers are, seems to be also part of the goal. So in a way, China is using the opportunity to say, let's don't be blindsided by what's happening now, but we really need to have a vision for the next five to 10 years. 
Getting back to what some of the listeners who had been, who were tuning in and who may be tuning in now, touching back to what may be some of their concerns, which is supply chains and how that's related to trade in general. Mr. Ding and Professor Gu both had some thoughts on that, which I thought were interesting, and maybe you can sum up their perspectives. So I think there are kind of two interesting observations. One, of course, is that a lot of companies are talking about China plus one strategy, meaning that there's an element of in China for China. So China is a vast and still growing consumer market that you need to be in China and continue to invest in China. But because of the trade war and because of China may be too big to be a sole supplier, you want to diversify that to the other parts of the region. But I think the consensus is that maybe there are a lot of people considering it, but to do it well and do it in a cost-effective way, it will take at least five years. Even if you are trying to rely on the rapid development of countries in Southeast Asia like Vietnam, it would still take five years. So that's one area. And second part of that is, of course, you know, there's still a lot of uncertainties with regards of U.S.-China trade war. If the trade war escalates, for example, if U.S. crackdown on Huawei becomes much more serious, and I think many of the companies have to make certain choices. And the economists also had an interesting coverage saying that many of these things that U.S. would do on the chip industry may actually force many of the chip industries to set up shop in other countries. And it may also provide a good opportunity for chip makers and also hardware manufacturers supporting the chip makers in Korea and Japan to find new business. Now, you had mentioned the, the questions you were getting from the audience, which you had a lot of them, I understand, which is great. But one of those was also one that's been on my mind lately, particularly because I recently finished a report on the same topic. But one listener was asking about China's digital currency. The questioner was speculating that such a, a new monetary system, which is under test now in four cities, as I understand, could be used to quickly put money in people's pockets and juice the economy that way. But your panelist, Mr. Ding, who is a chief economist with the Standard Chartered, seemed to shoot that down pretty quickly. Can you explain that point of view? So in a kind of a, not a real scenario, in a scenario where everything goes smoothly, everyone will be able to open an account directly with the central bank then the central bank in theory could pump money directly to you and also make sure that the money is being used for the kind of purpose you could use. So if the money for, is used for education, healthcare, and maybe buying some foods, then you cannot actually use it for other activities. So that's kind of in theory. But in reality, I don't think the government is going to bypass what the big major tech platforms, WeChat and Alipay, is going to be doing because they are doing a lot. They are facilitating all kinds of transactions in China. Actually, 90% of the you kind of a shopping is being done with these two platforms. I don't think the government is going to bypass that. What the government is going to do is to provide an alternative and also a kind of a safe last resort for these two platforms. If something goes wrong, if there is a shortage, if there's a hit of the state grid, what the backup plan with the central bank is that people could still transfer money even without a live internet connection as well as long as their cell phones has battery and cell phones could link to one another using Bluetooth. So I think that's what the government is planning. So in a way, it's going to be a last resort. And in other ways, 
I think that's something that Mr. Ding hasn't talked about, but many other panelists and then the audience may have alluded is that China's drive for digital currency may also be linked to China's drive for the kind of a comprehensive social security scores. So if you can link your own account with the central bank to the social security scores system, then in a good situation, you will be awarded for many of the things, but you will be punished instantly even before you realize. For example, if you are jaywalking in one of the streets and then your digital wallet may be deducted for 50 RMB because you've committed a small crime. <laughs> so I think that's something that's you know scary, but it's getting really real quickly. Yeah. Well, there's certainly a lot on the horizon with a, a digital RMB. And if China is the first to make it a reality, you know, to have a real functioning digital currency that's got huge implications. And maybe we should have you back to discuss that at greater length next time. That's actually a new and very interesting topic. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Chen. It was really great to talk to you. And I hope we have another chance to do this soon. Thank you, Jason. I really enjoyed that too. That wraps up our time. Thank you for listening. If you want to go straight to the source and listen to Wu Chen's panel, Reviving the Dragon, China's Recovery, this is part of the Unraveling Uncertainty series, a series of virtual events for senior decision makers looking for further insights into what the next 12 months will hold. It is available on demand on the Economist Events website. The next webinar will be on June 18th, Simon Cox, Emerging Markets Editor at The Economist, will be the moderator, and the topic is Surviving the Cash Crisis, the Capital Market Outlook. You can sign up at unravelinguncertainty.economist.com if you're interested. And if you have any feedback or questions about this podcast or any aspect of work from The Economist Intelligence Unit, you can email us at Asia Perspectives at economist.com. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. Thank you again for listening to Asia Perspectives from the editorial team at the Economist Intelligence Unit.